Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retainer, and I am broadcasting from here in the Hamptons, a place I have lived for over 50 years. I've written 12 books about this place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small fishing villages to what it is today, a summer paradise for New Yorkers, artists, writers, musicians, movie stars, we have it all. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with the Hamptons' powerful people, but I will also introduce you to residents who contributed to our growth through the years, and you may not even have heard about them. I want to welcome Alan first to the podcast. Alan is uh, one of the great American writers with uh, uh, for spy and Warren books. He's written at least a dozen of them, all bestsellers. And I think some of them were, have been made into films. Am I, is that correct, Alan? Yes, I believe so. I just don't, I don't quite remember which ones, but the BBC did one. Um, and there's uh, one um, in work right now. The one in work right now is um, uh, uh, Spies of the Balkans, which is, who knows, with movie making right now, but, but that's what's happening. Um, I want to talk with you a little bit about how you came to this very unusual genre of writing, which is, uh, as people have said, is uh, uh, war books about World War II uh, that are largely written from the point of view of um, ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things. Uh, I remember reading one book, one of your books, a Polish officer, where at the beginning uh, he is, uh, he has to, be, he finds out that he's going to be in trouble and he calls, he calls home to talk to his wife. Um, how did you get interested in this uh, We'll go back to, uh, uh, I guess, when uh, you got out of uh, college and you had tried different things, including being a taxi driver, and then you went to the Soviet Union. Well, that was, um, that was really the crucial thing. Um, I went to the USSR for Esquire magazine on an assignment that was going to be about a trip up the Danube, which originates in the Soviet Union. Um, actually, a part of Romania that Russia took for itself in, in order to have uh, influence um, on the Danube River that goes all the way up to Vienna. Um, from the Danube Delta, which is in Romania. So um, I went to the Soviet Union. They um, wouldn't let me just go to the origin point um, of the Danube little boat or steamer, you know, it was like a tour boat, um, very low to go under the Danube bridges. So um, they said, the Russians said uh, at the consulate in Seattle when I went there, 
that I would have to spend um, a certain amount of time in, in Moscow where I had no intention of going or interest in going, but 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 only on that basis would they give me a visa to get on this boat. So I did what they told me to do. Uh, long story short, I had never experienced a police state before. And it, it was terrible. I mean, frightening and, you know, I was followed everywhere, which everyone was and probably is. It, uh, the USSR is what it is. And um, that was really the genesis um, of these books. It was when I decided to write about it. I, I can tell you one story. Um, I was in, I think, Simferopol, which is down in the Crimea. And um, I was... In, uh, I, I was there on this trip, getting, you know, um, on, on the way to get on this boat. And um, this was just around the time of the downing of the Korean airliner, 007. I, this is like ancient history now, but this is, this is what happened. And um, so I was getting on... Um, a, 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 like a tanker or, or some kind of boat that would take me to the edge of the Black Sea. And um, I was coming, I, I went up the, the gangplank and I turned around and there were like 400 people waiting on the dock. I've, to this day, I have no idea why they were there. They couldn't go anywhere. They were just there. So, but I got to the top of the gangplank, and I turned around, and I gave them the V sign, the peace sign. And the next thing I knew, I had been shoved, and um, I wound up hanging on the chains on the deck uh, and looking down at the Black Sea where <laughs> I really didn't want to go at that moment. And um, I got back up to my feet and there was um, a, a guy there who had a hat that said he was the purser of that ship. And um, he looked at me and he said, oh, so sorry. Um, and I didn't say anything, but what I thought was, um, can I use bad language? I guess I can. You'll just do it. I said, I thought, I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to fuck you, and I'm going to fuck you good as soon as I get back to my typewriter. And in the end, I got back to my typewriter, and I wrote Night Soldiers. But that's the genesis of the entire series of books I've written since. Now, they're very different than that. I, you know, that's just one book. But I will say that Night Soldiers continues to be um, pretty much the most popular book. It's, I, I can see in the royalty statements that that's what people like to read. And I think part of it is 
they think, oh, well, I want to read Alan first novels, which is like a thing. And they, somebody says, well, you ought to start at the beginning, and the beginning is Night Soldiers. And Night Soldiers is based on, on my experiences well, in, the, in the Soviet Union and then in Bulgaria, et cetera, and so forth. Well, um, so you, you got scared, and I guess you scared everybody else as part of the book. Now, you had, you had um, written a couple of books before this that were not in this genre, and they all flopped. Is that correct? They were terrible books. I don't even the there the worst books anybody ever wrote. What terrible trashy books! There were four of them. I don't even you know where they have a, a place in a novel that says books by this author. You'll you'll never find those books there. The fact is, I didn't really have anything to write about, but I had a lot of talent, and so that. Whatever I wrote um, turned out to be publishable, and that starts with the terrible and not much lamented "Your Day in the Barrel." Um, what the, and what is the uh, what? In, what is your favorite book if you had to pick one? Oh, yeah, that's easy. The Polish Officer is the best book I ever wrote and the best book I ever will write. Well, and tell, tell the listeners about the basic story of what, who was in it and take, take a minute or two to do that. The Polish Officer? Yes. It, it's, um, it's a, I don't really remember entirely. It's a book about, um, Polish, basically Polish resistance to the Soviet Union and then to the Germans. Poland, as you know, is, is stru stuck in an odd place. It's um, between the USSR and Germany. And what, that's ne what year was this? Oh, man, you're going to have to look that up. I can't. Um, it, it, it's back. It's back like 30, 40 years ago. Okay. 1940. The Germans invaded Poland first. Uh, but um, talk a little bit about your growing up. Where, where, where were you born and raised? I grew up on the west side of Manhattan, um, a Jewish only child um, in uh, a struggling upper middle class family. Uh, my father's business had failed and um, my mother had to go out to work at the age of 52, which she did. I had a great mom, by the way, um, terrific person, wonderful. Every, you know, oh, I owe her, I owe her everything. There, there was a moment when I wanted to write a book called Moms, as as the greatest people in the world. Um, I, I of course didn't, but but um, I was very very fortunate in that I had a great mother who raised me. Um, I went to public school in the neighborhood, 83rd and West End on the Upper West Side. Um, I then went to Horace Mann, which is um, a good prep school, um, and, you know, did as best I could. Not great. But I then went on to Oberlin, 
um, where I was uh, very much a writer. I was editor of The Yeoman, which was the literary magazine. And um, I was always, starting at age nine, a writer. I always, I was always a writer. I was never not a writer. Um, did, you, did you type when you were nine years old? I wrote in print and my mom typed it up for me. After school, I read that you went back to live at home and your mother gave you $100 or something. What was that story? Yeah, I was, after college, I was home for like a week, one week. And then my mom gave me $100 and said, you can't live here. Go find a place to live, which I did. That was a very smart thing. I shouldn't, you know, she, you know, it was like you have to get out of the nest. Uh, and I didn't want to stay there anyhow. So I went and got myself an apartment uh, in New York and commenced to live my life there. And you went to Woodstock but left. We were the first people who left Woodstock. <laughs> it was really weird. For one thing, I came from Pennsylvania State University, so I was coming east, um, and, and no one else was. Everybody was coming up from New York City, so we were able to get there. We parked easily, uh, my uh, the time girlfriend and I um, went and, and found a place to sit, and then we discovered that that we couldn't hear anything because of the helicopters that were bringing musicians into play at Woodstock. So we left and <laughs> drove back to Penn State. Did you hear, so, did you hear anybody play? Uh, no, I think uh, Richie, if I remember correctly, and this I may be conflating this with the film, but I think Richie Havens um, was the first person to play, and we may have heard a few notes of that. I, I think I'm right about that, by the way, now that I think about it. It wasn't Hendrix. That was later. But it was, I think, Richie Havens who came out to play. It was like two, two in the afternoon, something like that. And you saw half a million people there? We, to our great surprise and shock, we were supposed to meet friends there. We didn't know, we had no idea what was going to happen at Woodstock. Um, we thought, we knew we had these friends, and I, I drove a friend, a friend named David Piper, um, and, and I, I said to David, well, well, we'll meet you there. We thought there'd be like 300 people there, and we'd be able to find each other. But, of course, it turned out that everybody in the world went to that festival. So there was absolutely no chance to meet anybody. Yeah. Anyhow, we left, and I, I, drove, I drove back to Penn State. That, that, was my, that was my moment at Woodstock. Tell me what uh, you, either in your latest book or what you're now working on. Ah, uh, I'm doing a revision on my new book, which is called Dark Alliance, D-A-R-K-A-L-L-I-A-N-C-E. And I've just finished the revision of that book. I've become exceptionally interested or obsessed, as writers are, with um, the special operations executive 
and their uh, and their operations during World War II. Um, what happened was that basically Britain fought the Nazis, particularly the Gestapo, in occupied France. And um, the, the story begins with um, a Lysander operation. The Brits used these um, small um, single-wing, single fixed-wheel aircraft called Westland Lysanders, and they um, were able to intrude into German air, you know, uh, German-occupied airspace over France and get their agents in. So it's it's a story of one of those agents um, and 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 what the what the Brits did after the they won essentially the Battle of Britain is they fought um, the Germans in occupied France. So it's a story built on those events. Where where do they land in your particular? Uh, um, they had to land in kind of northern France because the Lysanders couldn't go any further. You know, they were small planes and they were limited in the amount of fuel they had. They had to fly over the flak uh, that came out of the port of Caen. It's very hard for me to say that. Uh, is that right? Whatever. Um, and um, they would land in a field um, somewhere, and agents would um, would wait to get on the plane, and other agents would get off the plane. They could only have two passengers, three at the absolute most. But that's the way the Brits brought in their operatives, um, and these operatives. Uh, their job was to organize uh, the French resistance uh, in order to fight the Germans, and well, that's what. What is your hero in real? And, and is he? What was he? The hero he? of that book is a soldier. I see. He's he's basically a soldier, um, a British, uh, you know. At work for the British, at work for a, basically a committee in London, and you get to see the committee in London, which was the way it worked, and um, they would communicate by wireless, and what the Brits were doing was having um, parachute drops, um, providing the French resistance with weapons in, in order to fight um, the Germans um, who were occupying France, thus dark alliance, meaning the alliance between uh, Britain and the French resistance as they fought the Germans. And, and, and the Brits um, dropped amazing amounts of, of weapons and, you know, plastique, which is what the explosive was at the time. And... Um, they dropped the, the the cheapest, fastest machine gun you could make, which was the Sten gun. Um, there's a history of the Sten gun in this book. It, it was, let's say, uh, very cheap to make. Um, it would often um, explode or jam, but 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 that's what was available, and that's what they could make, and that's what the resistance used. 
tell me a little bit about uh, Sand Harbor and how you came to find it. When did you first come out here? And you're now living in Sand Harbor. So tell me about that. Uh, I came back from living in Paris. I've been in Paris for about 10 years. And um, my wife uh, and I decided that it was time to return to the United States. We knew about Sag Harbor um, from a real estate person whose name we had from some friends in Paris. Um, and I called her um, and I said, we're thinking um, of moving to the Hamptons. Somebody had suggested that to me. And um, what, would, what would be the reason why you, they would, it would appeal to you to move out? It was, um, it was described to me as a banana belt, and that's true. Um, the Hamptons have kind of a social reputation, but that's not the whole story at all. The, what, what actually goes on here is that it's beautiful. It's physically incredibly beautiful. And it happens that the village of Sag Harbor is a particularly nice place to live. Um, it was traditionally a blue-collar place for many years, so that there's a lot of original houses here from that period. The house I live in now um, is, um, is a Sears house. Uh, people... <laughs> I guess in the 1920s, people used to buy Sears houses. Sears Roebuck sold a house building kit, and you and your friends would get together. And I'm I'm, I'm sure it, it it I don't know if it came by truck. More likely, it 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 came um, by boat. Uh, anyhow, the, the that's how these houses got built. And there's a lot of them. They're up and down the street. The only difference between my house and other houses on Hampton Street is that I have a screen porch, which is a terrific thing to have, by the way, <laughs> if you can manage. Well, yeah, well, I, it sounds really nice. So what do you like about being in San Carlos? It's a village. I know, uh, I don't know everyone now, but it used to be that if you went to the post office, you were there for 25 minutes because you would always meet somebody you knew um, and you would get to talking and then someone else would come in. And it, it was at that time, you know, a center of village life along with the grocery store. It's just, it's just a village way of life. It's very, very different than anything I'd ever known before. Although, in fact, I'd lived in a village in the south of France um, before I moved to Paris. Um, and I, I, I like that. That's just a nice way to talk to people and to see people. And, and Sag Harbor is a really a kind of paradise. Make no mistake about it. Um, it, um, it, uh, it, it, it. It's always been like that. At one time, it was a blue-collar town. 
It was also a major uh, drinking town when it was, it was a whaling town at one time, connected. What year did you come out? Maybe 1970. No, 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 long after that. You know, I don't, I don't remember years very well. Um, I'm not entirely sure. I think I've been here 30, 35 years, though. Okay. I've been here a long time. I know it very well. Um, and I've watched it as it, you know, changed in small ways over time, but not, not, not in a major way. It's still um, a village at, um, on the very end of Long Island, remote in a lot of ways. We're 100 miles from New York. Um, I occasionally go to New York. I used to go more often and go in and have lunch with publishers, etc. But I don't even do that anymore, um, especially now with COVID. That's just changed everything, unfortunately. But I don't know that I do it anyhow. Um, I'm I'm um, somewhat reclusive. Uh, I don't I don't see that many people. I like being alone. I'm a good friend to myself. Um, I have um, a girlfriend uh, who lives in Vancouver, British Columbia, um, and we go back and forth seeing each other. Um, and that's uh, and and I have my books that I write, and you know it's not a very complicated life that I live. It's a good life, um, and I'm pretty happy. Um, but it's not complicated. Do you have, do you have an idea of what you're going to be doing next? Oh, I'll have to write another book. I'll be writing a book the day I die. I, I, you know, whether whether I get richer or poorer as a writer's life goes, you know, sometimes you're rich, sometimes you're poor. I don't have trust funds. I don't have family. I don't have anything like that. So I have to continue to work. But I work anyhow. Um, I'm happy. I, I really like being a writer. I, 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 it's a privilege. And, and underline that. You know, it's a, it's a, I'm blessed. I really, really am blessed, and I understand how blessed I am. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing I have. Yeah, I got it myself. Yeah, I had to compete. Yeah, I had to do better than other people, all that. But never mind. Um, I'm very privileged to live the kind of life I live. Describe your work room. Or do you work I, I, my work is I get up in the morning and um, I have coffee and I sit around for a while, have a cigarette, um, sit on the screen porch if it's not too cold. Um, eventually I go up to my office. I can write for about, um, you know, I think any, any fiction writer, Dan, will tell you that you can go two, two and a half hours, and that's about it. Then you really kind of run out of gas. And if you try to force yourself beyond that, um, it really, you'll, you'll have to throw out the work the next day. Um, I, I, um, yeah, that's about what I can do. I used to, I used to do two pages a day. I'm not following that anymore, but I would do two pages a day of new writing, and I would go back um, to the previous day's writing and um, clean that up. 
Um, and then I would go back another for another two days. So we're back from 160 to 158 to 156. Um, and I would then make 156 to 158 would be getting its final treatment, and it would be pretty. Uh, one 158 to 160 would have its facts correct, and 160 to 162 would be uh, new writing that's just, you know, don't think about uh, facts or correcting or anything like that. that that's that's my system. Uh, it, it varies now lately. I, I, can re I, I can write pretty good first draft now um, as time has gone by. But basically, that's the way all these books were written. Once uh, the writing is done around lunchtime, you go into yeah. town? Yeah, I sometimes do. Then it's errand time, you know, because I also have a, a life. I have a business I have to run as a writer, and um, I'll deal with that. I'll deal with whatever's on my computer. Um, I'll just do stuff, whatever, whatever suggests itself. Sometimes at night I'll see friends. Um, it's very normal. It's a very normal life I live. Honest to, honest to God, it really is. I don't travel very much right now because of the COVID. Um, I used to travel, um, and I used to write um, for magazines and stuff, but I don't need to do that anymore, and I don't bother with it. I just do. I just write books. Well, I want to thank you very much for taking the time to uh, talk to me about your work and your life and your writing and I appreciate it very much well thank you thank you for having me as as people say on television Dan <laughs> <laughs> take bye. care now okay, bye bye bye